Happy New Year. Welcome back to the Uncomfortable is OK podcast. I'm your host, Chris Desmond. This is a show where we explore the science, the stories and the strategies of getting out of our comfort zones so we can find where our magic happens. I hope you guys all had a great Christmas and New Year with loved ones and are ready to swing into 2018. Thank you so much for tuning back into us this early in the year. Now, I've got a bit of a special treat for you today. Dr. Greg Emerson is back on the podcast to kick things off for the year. Greg first appeared back in episode 62 last year, which was one of the most downloaded episodes of the entire year, which actually, for very good reason, um, he's super knowledgeable about all things health, but he's also very open about his own tough times um, and put those together. They just make for a fantastic conversation um, with a lot of stuff that you can take away from it. Today's conversation is no different. Greg and I chat through a variety of topics. Uh, we talk about reshaping his life. We talk about nutrition and intermittent fasting. Uh, he's been away and he's learned how to fly fish um, and also learned how to not get eaten by bears. We chat around mental health, Greg's framework for the causes of mental health problems, um, as well as what we can do as individuals to address these for ourselves. Um, we talk about why he's happy to be a freak and step away from the norm, uh, but this hasn't always been the case for him. And we also talk about the evolution of ourselves as individuals. So again, lots of great practical knowledge in our conversation today. Um, but before we jump into it, I have a special gift for you guys as listeners of the show. Um, I've created an online course about how to get out of your comfort zone, uh, which I want to give to you for free. Uh, it's my knowledge and all the knowledge of my guests distilled to step you through the process of getting out of your comfort zone strategically without stressing yourself out. So head over to getoutofmycomfortzone.com to sign up today for free. That's getoutofmycomfortzone.com to sign up today for free. It's a great way to kick things off for uh, 2018, no matter what your New Year's resolutions or projects or challenges are going to be. And as always, thank you guys for getting uncomfortable with Greg and I today. Welcome back to the Uncomfortable is OK podcast. My favorite poetic nomadic, uh, nomadic shamanic warrior, Dr. Greg Emerson. How are you today? I'm doing really good. Thanks, Chris. It's good to be back. Excellent. Yeah, it's really good to, it's really good to chat with you again. It's been uh, sort of five or six months since we, we had you on the show last and time's just flown by. 
Yeah, because it would have been, we were talking about uh, meeting up in Wanaka to do some cold water training. And uh, so, yeah, it was, it was uh, midwinter, I think, when we last spoke. It was, yeah. I made it, uh, I made it down to the Ancestral Health Symposium and, and caught up with Ben Logan down there and, and jumped, in, uh, jumped in the lake with him for a couple of times. So probably. Oh yeah, I, I, I saw some good photos of that. Yeah, it wasn't quite as cold as midwinter because it was October, but it was still right. it was still significantly colder than the water around Wellington. Yeah, I'm sure. Greg, um, I think like there's going to be quite a few people that have listened to our previous podcast where we jump into your backstory a little bit, but for those of uh, those that haven't, can you kind of give us a, a little bit of a synopsis about who you are and, and where you've come from? So, uh, raised in Nelson, uh, uh, trained in uh, medicine, uh, University of Otago, and then I came to Australia to train in the new specialty of emergency medicine. And then I eventually reinvented myself and became a diving physician and a diving instructor. And then on my last leg of my journey, I Stopped doing that, and for various reasons, again, I changed the type of medicine I I do, and now I practice, well, I I kind of became what's called a functional medicine specialist, where the difference is that, and we're going to probably talk about this later, one of the problems in medicine is it's become increasingly subspecialized. So you used to have doctors, and then you had physicians and surgeons, and then the surgeons divided up into orthopedic surgeons and general surgeons, and then general surgeons divided up into you know, neurosurgeons and gut surgeons. And now you've got surgeons that just operate on the anus. That's all they do. They're anal surgeons and they don't know anything else about the rest of the body. And of course, the problem is that what we have forgotten in medicine is that the body is not just a, a, a single, a collection of single organs. Strangely enough, they actually all interact with each other. And, and one of the problems with medicine is that we've moved away from seeing the body as a collection of organs to seeing the body as individual organs and not realizing that perhaps a gut problem is actually the cause of your skin problem. So you go and see the dermatologist, you're going to get a prescription for a steroid cream, but they may not realize that the parasites in your gut that you got on your trip to Bali are actually manifesting as a skin problem. So I started doing that and then I've kind of progressed from that now and I now do what's called, I now must see myself is more of a, a quantum biology physician, which means that if you remember the Matrix movie where uh, you know Neo was inside the Matrix and seeing the, the world as buildings and doors and hallways, and after he dies and then Trinity kisses him and he wakes up, he now sees the world for what it is, is a is a computer program, uh, and he sees instead of hallways and doors, he sees you know dashes and zeros of the of the computer matrix. Again, I now see the body not as a collection of organs, but a an a electromagnetic field full of mitochondria and electron flows. And you can see not just organs, but you're now looking at how is my body working at a cellular level? The water inside the cells, the mitochondria in the sides of the cells. It's a fascinating area for me to now go and explore further. So that's what I do now. Mm. So that is, that, that's fascinating as well. I mean, the, the human body fascinates me too. My day job, I, most people know, I work as a physiotherapist, so it's, but I'm, I'm interested in all of this other stuff as well. And kind of as the, as the science evolves and we find out more and more 
um, at that kind of cellular level around around the body and how everything works, um, and all of the all of the new stuff that's coming out at the moment, it just it kind of blows your mind with where our knowledge is at the moment compared to where it was even twenty years ago, and then where it's going to be yeah. twenty years in the future. Because I'm sure there's a whole lot about our body that we have absolutely no idea about at the moment that is just integral to, to how it works and, and what happens in there. Yes, and the fascinating thing, though, is that a lot of the new science is actually proving the rationale for a whole lot of traditional health practices that we have ignored. Uh, we now know why the quality of the water is so important. We now know why fluoride in the water may be a problem inside the mitochondria. We now know why getting cold is really important. We now know why eating seed food is incredibly important for the structure of the mitochondria. We now know why putting our bare feet on the ground to feed our mitochondria with electrons is incredibly important. We now know why getting cold is so important for the mitochondria because it converts white fat to brown fat. We have more mitochondria, so you produce more energy. The problem is all the research is going, well, this stuff's fantastic. It's a really good idea to get into cold water, but how the hell do we uh, uh, can uh, develop a drug to get the same effect? So we're learning about why it was a really good idea to get in cold water and then have sweat lodges and going, okay, how do we develop a drug to get the same benefit? Well, maybe we don't. Maybe we just get in cold water and have sweat lodges again. Mm, yeah, yeah. And I, I kind of want, I want to park this conversation a little bit because I want to come back to it and kind of talk talk about it a little bit a little bit later. Um, but the, when we left you at the end of the last conversation, um, you were in the in the process of of kind of reshaping your life a little bit. You used to you used to have a, a farm in Queensland um, that. Uh, you were you were kind of thinking of um, of selling on at that point in time for a for a variety of reasons. How has that gone for you? Are you still on the farm, or, or what's happening there? No, I sold the farm, and I sold. It was very hard to do that because the farm was my dream. But in the end, I had to, for a variety of reasons, the dream became incredibly stressful, and I was kind of spending an enormous amount of time and effort and stress to produce, you know, an organic piece of broccoli. And I thought, well, hang on, that's now I moved out to this farm to be healthy and now I'm getting uh, incredibly stressed and overwhelmed uh, to produce a piece of broccoli. And that's just not a good rationale for doing it. And I eventually had quite a, cr a crisis produced by a number of factors, including stress. And, I mean, that's a fascinating thing. One of the causes of, of depression is, is overwhelm and incredible amounts of stress and or pain, if you like. Pain is a common or, or loss is a common cause of depression. And, of course, the, the temptation is to go on a medication to try and numb that pain. But in the end, I think you and I have discussed before that pain is a great motivating factor. And if you, it's well known if you numb that pain, you're not probably going to take the action required to fix the problem. And I realized that the only way out of me of that crisis was start reducing my stress. And the biggest stress was trying to run a medical clinic 12 hours a day and then go home and run a farm at the same time. So I decided then the only way to 
relieve this problem, the first thing I had to do was sell a farm. And then it was interestingly about three days later, I'm sitting at work and this email comes in. It says, look, Dr. Emerson, I know this is a really strange thing to do and you don't know who I am, but I'm, I was on the weekends at your neighbours and looking at your fence and my farm's just uh, been taken over by a developer and I'm desperately trying to find another one and yours is the most perfect property ever and uh, I know it's not for sale, but you never get anywhere in life unless you ask and I was just wondering, per chance, maybe there was uh, there was that you might consider selling and I was like, well, Three days ago, no, but today, absolutely yes. It's a bit like me emailing Elle McPherson and going, listen, I know you don't really go out with just normal guys like me and usually hang out with massive celebrities, but just wondering if there's any chance you might consider dating just a normal guy like me. And she goes, well, three days ago, no, but today, yes, maybe. Uh, and eventually he ended up buying the farm and um, and it brought me back. Uh, and I, I now live in the city, but the benefit is that when I'm not at work, I can get out and go to any wilderness, whereas before I was kind of trapped in working in the farm on the weekend. Now I can go and do the stuff everywhere in the world that I want to do. So it's freed up my time dramatically. Mm -hmm. And that's um, that's kind of who you are as a person. I mean, in your in your kind of one line catchphrase, that there, there is the word nomadic in there as well. And I think that's that's obviously something that for you is is an important part of of your makeup. Yes, well, I, I tested that in April. I had this huge homesickness for New Zealand, and I really wanted to go back and live in Nelson. But, of course, my two daughters live in Brisbane, and even though they don't need their dad all the time anymore because, uh, you know, 21 and 19 now, they still do need me occasionally. And I was trying to work out if I should go back to Nelson because they're going to stay in Brisbane for a while. And I got back there on Easter, and I absolutely loved it. And it felt like home to me spiritually, if you like. But I, I was driving down streets that I've driven down hundreds of times before, and I realized that I was probably going to get bored in Nelson after a few months and then kind of start looking at other places to go. And I realized, for me, I am kind of nomadic. As, as long as I've got a good base and I have the ability to move and, and travel, then I can be incredibly happy, which is why I decided to stay in Queensland and visit lots of places like uh, Christmas I'm coming back and I'm going to catch up with Ben and Wanaka and stuff. So I do like the ability to move and experience lots of things and meet a lot of people and learn a lot of things, which the problem with being on the farm, that that was being inhibited for me. Mm, mm. And selling the farm, you were saying as well, has allowed you to um, even live a, a slightly more hunter-gatherer lifestyle as well that you were you were trying to move into. <laughs> Yes, I mean, that's a fascinating area for me. As I, as I learn more and more about nutrition, uh, I, I realize that probably, you know, us being the only species on the planet which is confused about what it should eat for breakfast, uh, the wolf, the gorilla, the chimpanzee, the hippopotamus isn't sitting around scratching their heads in the morning going, hell, I don't know what to have for breakfast. And we seem to have become incredibly confused by that. And uh, I think the lessons in nutrition is, is based in anthropology and our, our uh, you know, our, the history of our ancestors and how we evolved. Um, and so I'm fascinated by that area and, and, and looking to explore a lot of that more. And, and, and the science backs that up completely when you look at our brain development and uh, how our cells are made up of. And I think a lot of the things we're doing now is, is nutritional experiments which have never been done before. 
and uh, I don't think that's a very good idea. So I, I've wanted to explore the hunter-gatherer lifestyle a little bit, which is why you and I discussed. I disappeared off to um, Northern California in October to learn how to fly fish properly. So I flew into a place called Medford in Oregon, and I hired a car and drove to the Calamath River in Northern California, where I did a wilderness medicine conference and did some fly fishing while I was there. And it was an absolutely fascinating experience. And I wanted to learn how to fish as I, as I learned more and more about the, the, the DHEA, DHA and iodine in fish, which allowed us to develop the large brains that we now have and, and kind of made us a successful species. Um, but I wanted to catch my own fish. Uh, so I learned how to do that and had a fantastic time staying in this. It was an Indian reservation in Northern California. It's a great experience. Was there, um, was there some, something that kind of drew you to that particular place to go and, and learn how to fly fish? Because I'm sure you can no. pop back to New Zealand and, and do it yeah, as well. well. I had a couple. Oh no! Well, I absolutely want to do that. But there was a couple of conferences that I wanted to go into the US, and uh, so such a big trip. I wanted to try everything and together. I was actually trying to do the trip to. I wanted to go to the um, Yellowstone National Park uh, in Montana, but that didn't. The timing didn't work out well for that, so uh, I went to Northern California instead, um, and I had a, a fantastic experience in being uncomfortable there because we were living in tents by the river and it was it was kind of uh, uh, midwinter and it was very cold and so we had these tents to live in by the river the trouble is that um, there was mold inside the tents and uh, I'm a big anti-mold guy having been sick from mold before so I wanted to uh, try and get out of my tent uh, because I started to get uh, some symptoms back from being exposed to mould. And uh, the problem was, though, that as well as mould inside the tents, outside the tents was a whole lot of black bear scat because the place was overrun with black bears who were feeding on all the berries. So I had to kind of try and decide, should I stay in my tent and uh, put up with the mould or should I move out, sleep on the ground in my sleeping bag in these freezing cold temperatures and uh, uh, hope I don't attract too many bears. Um, so it was a difficult decision about the mould in the tent or the black bears outside the tent. What um, what decision did you end up making? Well, I realised I was only ever through four nights, so I decided that I would uh, put up with the um, the mould rather than the bears. Mm, yep, f- fair enough. Fair enough. You I thought I any- could probably re- I could recover from mold. I'm not sure I could recover so much from black bear mauling. Was my <laughs> hypothesis. Yeah, yeah. There's uh- uncomfortable is okay. We know that we love uncomfortable, but waking up to a black bear chewing on your leg is probably more <laughs> discomfort than, than either of us want. Probably more than this podcast uh, advocates. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. Did you did you see a few black bears around? They didn't try and steal your fish while you were there. No, I didn't see them. Uh, just, I mean, they were they were there because the the uh, the scat was fresh, full of berries. But no, I, I didn't see one. There was lots of uh, deer around when I was driving. I had to watch out for the deer at night. But no, I didn't actually see any of the bears. Mm. Awesome, um, Greg. You you mentioned a couple of things before. Um, one was about nutritional experiments. Um, 
and how there's a lot of people out there that are doing nutrition, weird nutritional experiments at the moment. Do you mind elaborating on what you meant by that? Well, I mean, nutrition's a huge subject, and everybody's a lot of people interested in nutrition now and are desperate for information. And uh, it's a good chance to sell people books. But if there's only one book on nutrition, you know, no other animal species has got different books on nutrition except for us. So there's only one book on nutrition. That doesn't sell very well. So everybody's writing up their different versions of nutrition. They're trying to, you know, as Jim Rohn said, you know, be very suspicious of somebody trying to sell you a new antique. There really are no new fundamentals in nutrition, yet we're trying to reinvent the wheel. And I think some of the stuff that's coming out, um, you know, has no history behind it, um, you know, and I don't say this to be disrespectful because I was a vegan for a long time, but I think, uh, you know, things like, you know, we have to accept that, that veganism is a, although an attractive option spiritually is a nutritional experiment which has never been done before in time what about um, the um what about the the loma linda um blue zone in, in california uh, don't they eat a predominantly vegan diet there oh well there's, there's difference between predominantly and complete mm-hmm. so uh no none of the blue zone areas they all have a plant-based diet but none of them are uh, exclusively vegan um so there's no historical precedent for it. And when you look at the body as the matrix and you look up of the way the mitochondria is structured and the way you um, – the fatty acids in the brain and how the brain is developed, you can see that that those uh, – that nutritional plan is not consistent with our basic – biochemistry or basic quantum physiology and, uh, you know, is going to end up with um, health problems in the long term. That being said, there are some people who are vegan, for example, who, who lead very healthy lives, but um, many of them don't. And you can't look at a few outliers as being proof that a, 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 a nutritional plan works for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that, that's true. I was um, listening to an interesting podcast the other day um, with um, a nutritionist talking about, um, yeah, the the trouble with diet and kind of just having one thing as a as a panacea for for everything. And he made the point that actually over the course of our our lives our lifespan, we kind of change our activity levels based on sort of what we're doing and how old we are and why do we expect to kind of have the same diet for, from when we're young to when we're 90 or 100 and and not uh, try and vary that from time to time as well? Well, I, I, th- I think that's reasonable. I mean, when you look at the, uh, you know, uh, the fetus, and brain development, you know, they always say the big difference between a, a chimpanzee, perhaps, which shares 99.9% of our genetic material, and us as a baby chimpanzee is born pretty able to look after itself in the world because most of its brain is developed when it is born. Our brains are so big that the problem with getting a very large brain 
is that you're now getting to birth problems. So if you if you let to get the brain out of the vagina, the head has to be small enough to get out, if you know what I mean. And so um, we have had to be born prematurely, if you like, so that we can still before the head and brain gets too big. But the problem is then you're then being born with a brain which is uh, incompletely myelinated, if you like, and not very developed. Uh, so the diet that a mother's going to have while she's pregnant and the, the, to feed a newborn baby to ensure complete myelination and development of that brain is very different to the diet that you and I might have to have when our myelin is, is um, complete. So, yes, absolutely. And then as you and I get older, uh, the, we're going to have to modify our diet to compensate for the challenges that we get in terms of our decline in hormone levels and a decline in our joint structure. So, yes, absolutely. But nonetheless, there are modifications. There's adapt and survives, but the fundamentals remain the same. You do need modifications, but the fundamentals remain the same. Mm-hmm. I think I would be remiss if I didn't ask you what you eat for breakfast. Uh, I have breakfast at uh, 12 o'clock midday. Uh, and today I had a, a wild Alaskan salmon salad with uh, pomegranate seeds and avocado. Mm. So I, I do intermittent fasting, so I, I don't eat anything after about 7 o'clock at night until 12 midday the next day. And people say, oh, well, you've got to have breakfast. It's the most important meal of the day. And, yeah, breakfast is the most important meal of the day, but breakfast is when you break your fast, and I choose to break my fast at midday until then I'm fasting until lunchtime then. I think that fits the structure of my day really well. Would I prefer to have the bigger meal earlier in the day and have a smaller dinner or, you know, stop eating later in the day and reverse the usual thing, you know, have the bigger breakfast and the smaller lunch and, and almost nothing for dinner? Yes, I would. It just doesn't fit in very well with the structure of my day. And I'm getting the results that I want by reversing that and having fasting until midday and then starting my eating window, which is from about 12 o'clock to, to 7 o'clock. But I'll have for breakfast, when I break my fast, same sort of thing that I have for lunch or dinner, which is usually, you know, a plant paste. Well, it'll be a high-fat, moderate-protein, lowish-carbohydrate kind of structured meal where I get most of my nutrients from healthy fat. Um, like with the with the salad, I had a whole most of my calories for my breakfast – speech marks today came from olive oil came from avocado came from the salmon so um, I'm getting most of my nutrients from fat which gives me energy to run on all day and also getting medicine from the plant food that I have as well mm, mm, very cool how long have you been intermittent fasting for oh about two years now I think yeah it just fits in really well for me it's unwell suited to it also kind of keeps a because I'm such a big unit, you know, I have this infinite capacity to eat. It gives me a good structure where I can kind of limit, you know. I remember, you know, when I was your age and I was playing professional basketball and running all the time, I could eat as much as I wanted to and, and not have any problems. But, you know, I was listening to Arnold Schwarzenegger on a podcast the other day saying, you know, He's got to have a salad and a soup for dinner now because otherwise he puts on too much weight. So as you get older, you have to certainly look at limiting your calorie intake to a certain degree and the structure of the intermittent fasting and that closed 
um, eating window uh, makes it easy for me to do that. Mm. Are there people that intermittent fasting doesn't suit? Look, they say that. I I don't think so. I think that, I mean, historically you're going to do that. You were hunter-gatherers. You and I went out on hunter-gathering, and I think that's where you've got to go uncomfortable is okay. Yes, there are going to be people who for a few weeks really struggle with intermittent fasting. You remember there's only two fuels for the body. You can, you can run the body on sugar. You can run it on fat basically. And because we all got poor nutritional advice for 20 years, where everybody got told fat was bad and avocado was going to kill you, and we ate a lot of cornflakes and wheat bix instead um, we switched off our fat-burning engine. That's like putting the Holden in the garage for 20 years and not taking it out for a drive. And then somebody says to you, oh, that Holden, it's actually a really good car. You go start driving that again, you go jump in it after 20 years expecting to run properly. Well, it's not going to run properly. So the transition from the carbohydrate-based sugar to the fat can be rough for people. But when you think about it, anthropologically, that's how we lived our lives. It was fast and fam, uh, feast and famine. It was yin and yang. It was the you know you and I went out today and 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 caught some fish and, and brought home a bison, and uh, other people went and collected uh, you know roots and shoots and plant foods and berries. But some days we didn't have much luck. So. There were days of uh, fasting and there were days of where there was uh, uh, more feast and our hormonal system and our and leptin, which is the main hormone which controls our optimizing our weight, are well suited to that, are designed for that feast and famine type thing. And even if you look at the way the fatty acid balance in our brain and that's uh, the, the omega-3s and omega-6s in our brain, it's a system which is designed around feast and famine. Um, and we ignore that anthropological history and we go for comfort, which is have three square meals every day and God forbid that you get hungry because that's uncomfortable and you can't do that. Well, that comes at a price because you're not following the fundamental quantum biology of the body, which is how it's designed. So, yes, some people struggle because they've switched off the fat-burning engine for so long and you will be very uncomfortable for a few weeks while you switch it back on. But the rewards are incredible once you do that. Mm, mm. And I, I've never I've never experimented myself with any intermittent fasting, but it's something that I'm, I'm fascinated by and something that I, I probably do want to try at some point. But I, I completely understand the, the discomfort that some people feel, that if you're, if you're used to having those three meals a day and and you miss one or you're you miss one by a little bit you think oh man i'm 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 really hungry at the moment and oh, and I'm, you get and you get brain fog your brain stops working because yep. your brain your brain runs on ketones and fat much better than it does glucose mm. all of a sudden your glucose your glycogen stores are depleted and you can't access your fat stores your brain's got uh, no fuel to run and nothing worse than, you know, sitting at 10 in the morning going, my brain's not working properly and I've got no energy. This intermittent fasting stuff sucks. That Dr. Emerson guy's an idiot. What does he know? Well, yeah, but you've got to, you've got to find a way. And you can, what we could, speech marks, biohack that by consuming small amounts of healthy fat during that morning uh, or that time when you're fasting and you'll still get the benefits of the fasting um, despite, um, and supplying your brain with some fat to run on. 
so there are ways to make the whole intermittent fasting process much more comfortable to make sure that you get the benefits but still have the brain function. I can't be sitting here 10, 10 in the morning dealing with the most complicated medical cases that no one else can fix with a brain which doesn't work properly. So I've got to make sure I have good brain function and I do that by having some uh, small amounts of healthy fats during the, uh, during the morning particularly caprylic acid, which uh, is, is about 10% of coconut oil is caprylic acid, but it's the main fuel for the brain. So I put a little bit of that in my coffee in the morning, and uh, that gives my brain the fat to run on until I have a meal at midday. Interesting, interesting. That was there's been kind of a quite a, a fascinating segue that uh, we I didn't really expect to go down, but that, that, that's good. I think let's let's go back to California actually, and let's let's go back to fly fishing and because fly fishing is a it's an interesting activity in what that it's a kind of a lesson in in patience and a lesson in um, a lesson in um, almost physical art as well. When you when you started fly fishing, um, did you find it quite uh, challenging to get into, and to, or did you did you pick it up reasonably quickly? Well, I mean, I'm always I'm that guy that goes if I'm going to learn something, I'm going to go and learn from an expert, mm. which is why I chose to go fly fishing with uh, with a group of people who were experts. Uh, so I didn't want to go through weeks of, of uh, you know, making mistakes and learning myself. I thought, well, I'll get the experience of uh, other people who've done this for 20 years. And so I, you know, I went with a company who taught fly fishing. And, you know, I found it very rewarding and picked it up very quickly. Mm. And what did you, um, what did you learn about, about yourself and kind of how you approach things from learning fly fishing? Patience. Uh, I learned to appreciate. Well, I mean, one of the great things about fly fishing is you're sitting there appreciating the beauty of the wilderness while you're there. Uh, I don't really want to go fly fishing in a, uh, you know, a, a big swimming pool, but uh, I was out in the middle of the wilderness. Uh, so, an appreciation for the wilderness. You, you, there's a thing. There's a thing which is unexplainable, which is why I'm sitting here umming and ahhing a little bit. And I just think it's a little bit about when you say, "Greg, how come it feels so good to fit, sit in front of a fire?" I don't know. It just does. And I think that's probably something encoded in our genes that we are kind of locking into. Why do you feel comfortable uh, in your sleeping bag in a tent, and you think that, that the bear roaming around you, you're safe from? Why do you feel a sense of security in front of an open fire? Why do you feel peace and calmness when you're standing by a river and fly fishing? I don't know. I think you're locking into something in your genes that you can remember which says this is what I'm meant to be doing. That's how I feel anyway. So um, so I learned patience. I learned uh, appreciation of beauty. I learned to stay away from beers. And I learned to uh, – I learned to um, – uh, you know, somehow lock into uh, unlock the secrets in my um, genetic blueprint. Did you say unlocking a genetic secret? Well, no, I don't know. I don't know how to put it right. I mean, I'm not a wordsmith uh, <laughs> by any degree, and I'm a man with a limited vocabulary. But um, you know, it's, a, it's the fire analogy. 
what is it about a fire that makes you feel so comfortable? And nobody really knows, but I think there's there's things written in our genetic code which we don't fully understand. And I think that I just feel that when I'm in front of a fire or a fishing, I feel like I'm in the right place doing the right thing and it's something that I'm designed to do, but I can't explain it yet. I don't have the knowledge or the vocabulary to put that into words. Yeah, I, I understand the feeling that you, that you get with that. I think like when I'm in kind of spectacular places in nature, there is just something in your body that it, it feels right, but it also kind of, you feel a sense of wonder yeah. In in yourself that hey yeah. I'm I'm here I'm I'm sitting ex- well, or walking experiencing what's what's happening around me and it's just it's just amazing and I'm just a, a super lucky person to be able to to be here in the space that I am in this moment just enjoying it. Yes. Yeah and, and the the mechanism for that feeling I'm not sure. Mm. And nor are you. No. But who cares? No, no. Thing, who cares? It feels fantastic. Yeah, it doesn't I mean, mean- I, I, I can give you lots of physiological reasons for the benefits for that, but it doesn't explain why you and I just feel amazing when we're out in that environment. Mm. And it doesn't mean that we can't just go and enjoy it because we know that it we know that it feels good and we know that it, it works. It's like Uncom- the- uncomfortable is okay, but so is feeling amazing as it well. Is, it Again, is. that's the thing that you want. You want both. You want certainty in your life. You want uncertainty, you want security, but you also want adventure. But you also want uncomfortable, but you also want comfortable as well. So mm. we want to experience both. And that's where the growth comes from. That's where you go to the gym. You go to the gym, you work out really hard, and then you have uh, a few hours off and get a massage. You want to stimulate the muscles and you want to relax the muscles. It's where growth comes from. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that's that's an interesting um, kind of segue, talking about that that feeling and how we don't know exactly where it comes from um but it's it's great for us and it's great for our mental health as well and i I wanted to i wanted to have a bit of a talk to you um about depression and about mental illness um because thankfully there's a lot more talk about depression and mental illness now than than there used to be um which is is hopefully part of the puzzle at um at helping to address that um, as well, but also there are there's probably also more talk because there is more depression and mental illness than there used to be as well. And I'd love to I'd love to have a bit of a chat with you about kind of your thoughts around um, depression, mental illness, sort of um, your your system for breaking it down, and and maybe some of the some of the triggers that um, that you see are kind of common ones across across society. Yeah, look, it's a fascinating area because if you add, if you include everything under a mood disorder and you include behavioural disorder in children and you start, you know, look at the autistic Asperger's ADHD spectrum and carry that on up into anxiety and depression um, as we get older, the, the proportion of the population which has has some experience of all those emotions is uh, or illnesses and sometimes is extraordinary. I mean, it's just huge. And perhaps anxiety 
is is even bigger than depression. I see a lot more anxious people than I see depressed people. And they're often not coming to see me with anxiety. They come and see me with a cancer or an arthritis, and I say, what else do you want to talk about? They say, well, I'm always anxious. But they never speak to anybody about it because they know if they go to the doctor, that's going to get a prescription for some sort of valium or diazepam or something which they don't want. So there's a lot of people out there living with anxiety just thinking they have to put up with it. And it's um, one, of, one, of the, one of the things I break down for people is that a, a key concept, there are two key concepts to understand. Uh, one is that if you draw a, a vertical line of the health spectrum and at the bottom of the line is a zero and that's when you're dead and 10 is at the top of the line, which is when you are functioning optimally physically and mentally, most of us are running around at about a five now. If you think you're fine, you're probably about a five as to what you could be getting. And what I do in my clinic medically is work on people from the zero to five area, which is where I'm looking for medical pathologies. I'm looking to fix the thyroid. I'm looking to fix the parasites. I'm looking to fix the chronic infections. But then five to ten is what we would call kind of is commonly called biohacking now, where we go, okay, I don't have any official medical pathologies, but I'm living in a world which is affecting my biological systems with the fluoride in the water, the chlorine in the water, you know, 75 vaccines before the age of five, the um, LED lights coming out of my mobile phone, the EMFs coming out of my computer, the 4G, 5G. Uh, we're basically living in a microwave. So we've all got to find a way that we can we can adapt our world to compensate for the toxins that we're being exposed to. I mean, there's glyphosate in rainwater now. You can't escape these toxins. So one key thing to understand is that there's medical pathologies we need to fix, but there's also uh, adapting to the world that we need to live in, uh, that we live in to fix. And the other key, uh, the key concept I, I discuss with people when I'm looking at their mood disorders is I draw them a box, and then I divide that box into four quadrants, all of which got a, have got a different root cause of potential mood disorders. And the boxes are, number one is medical, number two is psychological, number three is toxic, and number four is anthropological. So there are lots of medical causes of mood disorders. That could be profound zinc deficiency, uh, because zinc is critical to make neurotransmitters in the brain. It could be from your hypothyroidism. It could be from your low testosterone. The average 40-year-old man now has a testosterone, testosterone level which is half of his 40-year-old father. An average 40-year-old man now has half the sperm count that his 40-year-old father had. So there are a number of parasites in the gut will cause mood disorders. Uh, any sort of chronic infection will affect the brain and the dopamine production in the brain. So there's lots of medical things to be looked at um, in the first instance. Second thing um, is the uh, psychological, which usually comes from loss or overwhelm, and that's what I went through when I was in complete overwhelm trying to do this job, living by myself in the middle of the wilderness, trying to run this farm at the same time. I didn't have any medical problems. I was in a state of loss, loss of a dream, loss of expectations, huge amount of stress, which which manifested itself ultimately as, as a neurotransmitter imbalance, but the solution for that was not a drug. The solution was for me to 
uh, find a remedy for the amount of stress and overwhelm that it was. And sometimes if it's loss, it's loss of somebody, it's loss of love, uh, it's uh, loss of a friendship, then it's just you have to have, it's just going to be a matter of time uh, as a big part. Again, no drug is going to fix that for you. In fact, it's going to, as we said, numb you to making, numb the pain and therefore stop you making decisions to help you get out of that. The third is toxic. That's the the EMFs, the, um, uh, the LED lights, the blue light coming out of the phones. That's been shown to reduce dopamine levels in the brain. The EMFs and blue light coming out of computer screens, the LED lights. There was an interesting article in the National Geographic last week. It had a, had a uh, satellite picture of Calgary 10 years ago and, and now, and the, the big observable difference in the picture was that 10 years ago, Calgary at night glowed red, and now it glows blue because we've changed over from incandescent bulbs to LED lights. And what they were saying is that the LED lights, the problem is that the wildlife surrounding Calgary is having their health decimated by the LED lights because it's stuffing up their circadian rhythms. If the fox doesn't know when to hunt anymore and the possum doesn't know when to sleep anymore, there's going to be big problems. And that's fine, and you and I both love the wildlife, but here's the thing. We think we're separate from wildlife, but we're not. Anthropologically, biologically, we're still wildlife, and we aren't living around this stuff. We're living in the freaking middle of it, wondering why we've got mood disorders when we've got the stuff that we're surrounded in, which is affecting the neurotransmitters in our brain. And, you know, remember those days when nobody wanted a phone tower outside the house? No, no, don't build that thing here. Now it's like, yes, please build it in front of my house so I get much better internet speed and phone reception. And you go, well, that's okay, but that's going to half your testosterone level and drop your sperm count. I don't care. I just want better Instagram access. It's like, okay, well, this is going to be consequences for us. And so don't be surprised if you start getting some uh, neurotransmitter problems in the brain. And, of course, then the uh, fourth one is anthropological which again relates somewhat to that because you and I both know that as a species, Homo sapiens are designed to live in small tribes who face adversity, face discomfort, battle through it as a tribe, all contributing to that tribe, um, to the betterment of the tribe. Now we find ourselves living in an apartment. Uh, we're spending a lot of time on social media uh, and the internet uh, comparing our lives unjustifiably to other people's Instagram pictures, um, feeling isolated from a tribal perspective uh, with a um, aversion dis discomfort. We want the air conditioner on when we're uh, hot and, uh, you know, cooling when, sorry, cooling when we're hot and cold when we're, well, you know what I mean? You want the air conditioner on to maintain your comfort. It's too late in the day for me to get that right. Um, <laughs> Uh, and you want to pop downstairs to the cafe to get your meal, and we're no longer uh, living the sort of lives that we were designed to. In fact, if you read Sebastian Junger's book, Tribe, it's fantastic. He found that most cases of post-traumatic stress disorder were not actually in the military, were not actually people on the front line, but more of them were the radio operators and the cooks, and they had lost their sense of purpose because they were no longer living in this tribal military type of organization that they valued so much so it's become a huge problem for all of us the way that we've become you know living fairly isolated lives and i often see that here when women come to see me 
and they bring in the three or four kids at the same time and I'm trying to have a consultation with them with four kids running around the room and they say they're very stressed with the four kids. And I say, well, here's the problem. You know, anthropologically, how many women would have raised those kids? Well, they would have had, you know, most of the women in the tribe contributed to the raising of each other's kids. You and I as fathers didn't really get involved until we were about eight. So the, the, the young children had a group of women looking after them in a tribal situation. They learned to love and respect women. And then at the age of eight, nine, ten, you and I took over their instruction. And I think that's all missing now. How many women get to look after three, four kids? One, because all their other you know, sisters and neighbours are out working. So it's brought a huge stress on women in particular as mothers and it's also perhaps, uh, you know, one of the contributions where, where children are not learning to respect women enough because they, they're not uh, getting that, that tribal female involvement in an early age. And that's, you know, manifesting now as a lot of the social problems that we see. So I think it's cha we've changed the way we live our lives and that's coming as a coming at a, a detriment to our mood as well. Um, so I think when you say, okay, depression is caused by this, well, it could be caused by a ton of things. It could be medical, it could be uh, psychological, it could be um, toxic, it could be anthropological, all of which require a different treatment. So one of the things I do in my clinic is, okay, you've got a mood disorder, let's find out why, because your treatment is going to be different depending on what cause you have. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, you make a you make a really interesting point there, and I think they can they can also layer on top of each other as well. Oh, oh absolutely! Oh, absolutely! You, you've almost certainly got two or three from each quadrant involved. Mm. With um, obviously, kind of the the way that society has been heading and probably will continue to head for a little while is that we. We are almost becoming we're becoming more like we're we're close and we think that we're connected on social media, but we're becoming more distant and more kind of disengaged from that that tribal society. There is more um, environmental challenges for us for our mental health in terms of technology and um, and all of the things that all of the changes to our environment that have been happening over the last the last few years. Um, as well as kind of uh, changes to um, kind of population health as well um, with kind of um, increased obesity but also malnutrition at the same time um, and then you're always in kind of increased stress levels and things so everything kind of seems to be sort of spiraling upwards in terms of of pushing this this kind of mental health um, these mental health issues and, and just making them making them larger how do we how do we go about kind of combating that and um, looking after our mental health in a way that we can hopefully stop it like um, opt optimize it and um, so it doesn't get to this kind of tipping point where we um, where we kind of crash and crash and burn. Uh, great question. Uh, the first thing is we decide to take responsibility for it, and we don't. They did a study a while ago where they sent a hundred people to the GP, and the GP said you can either take 
uh, a drug for this or you can make some lifestyle changes. And 95% of people said, well, give me the drug. Um, and we can't rely on the system to save us. We have to be aware of the problems that we face and then we have to make some changes for ourselves. And this is, I love this quote from, remember the movie, uh, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button? Mm, mm. There's this great quote in there at the end when he's gone off by himself to India, I think, and it says, he says, it's never too late to be who you want to be. There's no time limit. Start whenever you want. You can choose or stay the same. There are no rules to this thing. You can make the best of the worst times. I hope you live a life you are proud of. If you find that you are not, I hope you have the strength to start all over again. And I think that's what I'm saying is that sometimes you go, okay, my life's not heading in the right direction. Um, I'm going to take responsibility for this and I'm going to um, start fixing this. Now, that, that responsibility might be, first of all, going to a really skilled health professional and taking care of box number one, which was the medical things. I mean, you can't be hypothyroid. You can't have low testosterone and go, okay, well, I'm going to um, take responsibility for this. You might need some medical assistance with that first. So that's the first thing, I think, is go and see a good health professional who's skilled in this area to make sure you don't have any medical problems as causing your problems. The other things, then, you have to look at my, your toxic exposure, what am I getting exposed to in my environment? How do I reduce that? How do I reduce my exposure to the uh, blue light in my life? As you can see, I'm wearing my blue light blocking glasses now. Um, and I know that next time you and I speak, you'll be not only doing your intermittent fasting and in cold water with Ben and I, you'll be wearing your blue light blocking glasses when you sit in front of the computer with me because you're currently lowering your dopamine levels looking into that screen and you don't want to lower your dopamine. You're also lowering your testosterone levels and you're also disrupting your microbiome. So the EMFs, you're sitting in front of a giant um, uh, microwave now, um, altering your microbiome, uh, lowering the dopamine levels in your brain and halving your testosterone. I'm sure knowing you, that's the last thing that you want to be doing. So how do you change it? Well, you start reducing your exposure to bad light, the LED lights, uh, the blue light from the LEDs, and you start increasing your exposure to healthy light, which is uh, sunlight, surprisingly enough. You know, And that's why if you look on my YouTube and my Instagram page, you'll see me getting up and watching lots of sunrises in the morning and, and sunsets at night because of the benefit of the infrared light early in the morning and late in the evening. And interestingly, the guy who just won the Nobel Prize in Medicine about three weeks ago won it on looking at the circadian rhythm of cells and what sets the circadian rhythms of cells. Well, it's the infrared light in the early morning and in the evening interacting with a layer of cells on the back of our retina, which stimulates um, the suprachiasmic nucleus in the brain to adjust all our hormone levels. And we're missing out on all of that, wondering why we've all got mood disorders. So there's some really simple things that you can do. You can eat better, you can go organic, you can eat, eat a more natural diet, and you can reduce your exposure to toxins, particularly the glyphosates, but most particularly the the blue light and the EMFs, increase your exposure, the good light, the sunlight, the infrared light, and then you start working on how am I going to, instead of having a tribe on Instagram, instead of having a tribe on Facebook, maybe I'll go and give my friends a call and catch up and, uh, you know, we'll go out to the wilderness for a weekend or whatever we want to do to start 
fostering more of a natural tribal type of uh, way of life rather than the new age uh, one, which is based around social media, media and steering to blue screens, stop dropping your dopamine levels. Mm, yeah, and I think uh, other than the the blue light uh, blue light glasses, I, I do need to get myself a pair of them. Actually, um, I think that. Well, that's it. I, that's it. I go to the gym with my twenty one year old daughter uh, in the in the evenings, and I wear my glasses because the gym's full of LED lights. And she goes, "Dad, you're such a freak." And I go, <laughs> I go. She'll hate me telling this story. Uh, and she, she goes, you're such a freak. And I go, okay, honey, you're true. What's the, what's the average age of these guys here working out with us? And she goes, oh, mid-20s. And I say, well, who's working hardest and who's lifting the biggest weight here? And she goes, well, you are dead. And I'm like, happy to be a freak, honey. <laughs> uh, so, so, so sometimes it's good. To, in these days, sometimes it's good to be a freak. It I'm is, yeah, yeah. Have you always been happy to be a freak? Yes. Well, when you're six foot seven, you don't get much of a choice. Mm, yep. You've got to learn. So no, the answer is no. The answer is have, secondary school for me was a nightmare. And, uh, um, you know, when, you, when you're growing up and you're different to everybody else, uh, it, it might not be a happy existence. Now I'm delighted to be one, but no, not always been happy being a freak. Yeah, I've, I've had a few of these conversations recently, actually, where it is – it's hard to be someone that isn't isn't in the norm um, and kind of be, to be doing something different and following a slightly different path because I mean we're we're wired to stay one of the herd and to try to want to fit in and that was that was kind of always where I sat in high school or in and before that as well as I just wanted to fit in I wanted to sort of be be part of the crowd and I sort of I shaped my identity around that and. It's only kind of more recently that I've figured out that actually, hey, that's that's not necessarily a good thing. Like if you look at what all the crowd does, we're, we're, as a society, we're, we're getting more mental illness, we're getting more physical illness as well. Um, people are living unfulfilling, boring lives as well. So I'm, I'm kind of be kind of glad to be sort of stepping away from that now as well. Yeah, and, well, it's very important you, you you have a tribe, but you've got to be careful who you put in, you know who you include in that tribe. Mm, mm. You don't want to select that tribe for people who are moving in the same direction that you want to move in, and you step maybe away from the main herd, if you like. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that tribe can evolve over time as well as that. Sometimes you'll that that first step that you take, you'll kind of put yourself in a in a new tribe, and then you'll find out a little bit more information and and test out some new new things, and then actually that will lead you to another step and lead you to another tribe that you can kind of um, work on things work on things with as well. And it's often your your tribe evolves as well. Oh, absolutely. As, yeah, if if you and I had this podcast five years ago, we wouldn't have been talking about any of this. I'd be um, going, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Cold water. What are you talking about hunter-gathering? What are you talking about crazy glasses? I'd be going, well, you know, we'd be having a completely different discussion. So, yeah, as we grow and learn, so does our tribe grow and learn. Definitely. I think five years ago I would have been lucky to have, one, started a, a podcast like this, but also um, to have had anything decent to share on it either. So Yes. Yeah. 
I'm, I'm glad yes. that I'm glad that we're having this conversation now. And actually, it, like it's like the it's like healthcare and kind of and our and science and our knowledge of of things and that that's that's evolving as well. And like it'd be interesting to to sit down in five years time and and have a conversation with you, Greg, and and compare it to the conversation that we're having today and and look at the people that we're that we're going to be and how much more we're going to know and where we're going to mm. be sitting. Well, I, I hope it'll be very different. You know, people mm. keep saying, oh, Greg, you should write a book. I'm like, well, I'm not going to write a book because by the time it gets published, it'll be completely out of date. I mean, you can write a book on fundamentals of health, but, I mean, science is moving so quickly now, and, and I'm moving with it. Uh, and the, the really interesting thing I do about my clinic is that the stuff I'm doing here came out in the scientific literature last night. I'm kind of this because I'm kind of this independent uh, in a certain degree, um, I can ad adapt and change. I mean, I'm doing, uh, you know, I, I wrote an article the other day about interstitial cystitis, which is a, 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 a problem for many women where they have symptoms all the time of having a urinary tract infection. Uh, but uh, th when you try and grow the bacteria in the urine, they can't grow anything. Uh, and so they're kind of sent off with no treatment and they're in chronic pain and having to go to the bathroom every 15 minutes. Um, and it's a terrible existence for them. And we've had no successful treatments for it for, for medicine. And, and now, you know, the last couple of months, a new test has come out, which is growing the fungus and the bacteria that were there all the time that we couldn't identify in, in, in testing. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I've adapted and changed my protocols for interstitial cystitis as of a week ago with all this new information that comes out, whereas perhaps the hospital system, that, that paradigm is going to take 20 years to change. So the ability to adapt, survive, change your tribe, learn is incredibly important. So you and I, when we have a, another podcast, hopefully in six months' time, we'll be having a different conversation altogether because you and I both will have been through stuff, both will have experienced discomfort. And that, I mean, that stuff I went through six months ago and and, and, and I, I lost somebody very special. Um, and I, I'm ultimately really glad I went through it because it's just made me a much better person than, than I was. I, I always tell an interesting story about and I apologise if I talked about this story in the first console, but I remember my, when I was a second-year doctor, my first rotation of the year was a psychiatric rotation at Nelson Hospital. And in the, in the mornings, I worked at a long-stay psychiatric hospital where my job was to walk around to decide how much antipsychotic to inject into everybody every day to stop them kind of uh, hurting themselves. Whereas in the afternoon, I walked in. I worked in a walk-in counselling clinic in the middle of the town, and and most of the people you see in a walk-in uh, clinic in the middle of a town are usually a woman, and they're usually middle-aged, and most of their problems are related to relationships. And I'm this 24-year-old guy, incredibly highly trained doctor, but I haven't really had a serious relationship yet in my life, and I'm meant to be sitting there giving them counseling advice about relationship problems and I'm talking about a fish out of water um, but now I'm very good at that because I've been through a whole lot of crises and I've been divorced and I've learnt about relationships and, and, and had I not been through any of that stuff I couldn't be the healer I am today and I often talk to people when they say I don't understand why I'm so sick and I say, look, something you have to have faith because it's very easy to have faith in life when things are going well. But you have to have faith that 
that something at least good will come out of this because going through the stuff that you're going through is going to change you as a person and you're going to find ultimately your purpose in life will change because of the learnings that develop, that, that going through this trauma and this crisis that you're having. And almost always that people come back with feedback saying that's happened for them. Mm. Now, I'm not saying they don't have this massive sadness and, you know, that they say time heals everything. Well, you and I both know it doesn't, that sometimes time doesn't heal everything, but you time will allow you to learn to live with the pain and the loss that you've had. But nonetheless, you become a, a much more of an asset to other people when you've been through that and stuff that you learn from going through it. Yeah, the pain and, and discomfort is a, is a crucible, really, for for transformation for you. And I think, like, I mean, that's... like that. Here, my saying, I'm not a wordsmith, and you come out with a, a crucible for transformation. I've been thinking of that one for a little while, actually. That's while you're good. Telling I can't, that story. I can write that down. And use that. That's so good. Um, but yeah, transformation. And I, th- I think, I mean, that's that's one of the that's one of the things about the podcast is, I mean, there is. There's going through that that type of pain and the pain of loss as well, and 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 that discomfort and yeah, it hurts and it stings and, but probably ninety nine percent of the time it it's going to be okay and it's going to it's going to work out and you're going to grow and you're going to learn something from it. But there's also that that pain and and discomfort of actually when things are going well of stepping out and putting yourself in some pain and putting yourself in some discomfort to transform things as well. And I think the the more we do the latter, so the more that we step out of our comfort zone and put ourselves into, into that pain and get our body used to it, because we're proactive about it and we can kind of work towards it, the more frequently we do that and the better we get at that, then the more likely we are to be better at dealing with the with the former. So when life throws us a throws us a curveball that causes us that pain and causes us that that discomfort, that because we've been proactively training it, yeah. then we have that training there to react to this other situation that and hopefully we've we've built enough resilience to make it a little bit easier for ourselves to get through that pain. Yes, there's this great scene in Rocky 2. You've seen, obviously seen the Rocky movies. Yep, yep. There's a great scene in Rocky 2 where Apollo Creed decides that he, want to, he wants to fight Rocky again because a lot of people think that although he won in Rocky 1, he didn't really um, uh, beat him. He just uh, he won, but he didn't beat him. So he wants to find Rocky 2 again. And his kind of support team are like not very enthusiastic for that fight to happen. Uh, and he says, uh, what are you guys afraid of? And his trainer come up and says, look, Rocky, he's all, he's, he's all wrong for us. I saw you beat that man like I never saw no man get beat before, and the man kept coming after you. We don't need that kind of man in our life. And it's a bit like that's the kind of what you have to have in this world. You have to be that guy that keeps coming uh, despite – the, the slings and arrows that, that come on your life. You've got to be that guy that other people don't want in their life because you keep coming no matter what happens. And that's uh, and you can teach that to other people. It's the experience that you teach. Mm, 
definitely. Um, Greg, I'm just mindful of the time, mate, and uh, I want to make sure you get your dinner actually within that sort of intermittent fasting <laughs> window. Yes, well, it's six twenty-five. I yep. got to stop eating by seven. <laughs> yep, if, I, if, if by seven, I don't get eat. <laughs> I've got a couple <laughs> more questions that I want to yes. that I want to ask you before we wrap it up, and I think I may have asked you some of them last time. That the first is, what was the last uncomfortable thing that you did, and how did you get through that? I spent uh, last weekend down in Byron Bay in a tent uh, for two reasons. One is I like the stoic philosophy of what's the worst thing that can happen. And I can go, the worst thing that can happen, uh, I, I lose everything. And uh, I, I got to live in a tent. Um, and uh, I go, well, let me go and do that. And, and, you know, the Stoics used to go and, you know, put on a pair of shorts and go and live in the bush for three weeks and go, hey, I'm okay. And, again, it was a, a reminder that no matter what happens, I will find a way to survive. And so I was uh, I was camping. And the second thing is I spent a lot of time hiking in the wilderness to waterfalls and national parks and getting in the cold water because uh, the scientific data now on the health benefits of getting cold water is uh, is phenomenal. So that was the last uncomfortable thing I did was the cold water of the national parks hiding under some waterfalls. Very cool. What's the next uncomfortable thing that you're going to do and why is that uncomfortable for you? The next uncomfortable th- thing for me will be the same. I'm on. I'm coming. Well, it's not going to come from coming home to New Zealand at Christmas. I look. Here's an uncomfortable thing. I am going to go. I was going to say that I was going to Wanaka to hook up with Ben and get in some cold water. But here's the really uncomfortable thing. I'm going back to Wellington to see my mother, who's in full time nursing home with uh, severe Alzheimer's disease. I lost my father in March to Alzheimer's disease, and uh, my mother's now. Um, a nursing home with the same disease, and she will not recognise me uh, or know who I am. And I'm going to have to go and see my mother and spend some time with her. And I'll feel very sad about what has happened to her. But again, it's again, I will also use it as a uh, motivation for me to take incredibly good care of my brain uh, because both my parents have got severe. I always say to people, one and two of us are going to die of heart disease, one and two of us are going to die of cancer, and, and most of us are going to end up with Alzheimer's disease, so you better have a strategy for all three. So for me, pain has always been a much better motivating force for me than uh, uh, pleasure has. So although it will be good to see my mother again, it, and it will be uncomfortable because she's so sick, and also, I'll use it as a motivation for me to continue on my journey in helping other people avoid these terrible, debilitating, chronic diseases. Mm. Thank you for sharing that, Greg. That's, uh, that's a, a pretty powerful story there. Um, my next question for you is, I mean, we, we've talked about it a little bit already, but do you have any strategies that you're using at the moment to help approach uncomfortable situations? Oh, that's a great question. I was, I, I, I had a, st- I wanted to tell you a story, and I thought, well, I really had a good segue into that. But um, my strategy has always been uh, follow me 
that that I that I want to lead by examples, particularly with my two daughters. I always think that you can't really make your kids do anything. You just you hope that lead by example that they eventually want to follow you. And there's a one of the best TV series I've ever seen is Band of Brothers. Do you watch Band of Brothers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. About the um, the uh, Easy Company 506 parachute. Uh, um, 101st Airborne, and there's that great scene where uh, they are attacking the German town of Foy and Lieutenant Dyke is leading them, and uh, he basically has a crisis, and although they're meant to be advancing, he, he gets analysis paralysis and stops and puts his whole kind of platoon at uh, risk, and they so send in one of the great heroes of Easy Company, uh, uh, Lieutenant um, Ronald Spears, who basically goes and takes over from Lieutenant Dyke, makes an, an, an instant decisions about what to do. And and what's happened is one one company has gone around behind the town of Foy and another company is in front. And unless they communicate to the company behind the town of Foy, they're going to disappear. So uh, uh, Lieutenant uh, Spears runs through the German lines, between the machine guns, through the tanks, with the Germans looking at them going, what the hell are you doing running through our lines? He hooks up with the with the uh, platoon behind the town and then turns around, runs back through the German lines, ducks between the tanks and the machine guns to hook up with his own company. And his men just look at that and go, oh, my God, what an absolute amazing leader. Oh, what a great example. And they, they turn that losing situation in the town of Foy into a great victory for Easy Company. And it is so inspiring for me. And it goes, okay, that's really what I want to do. I want to, to continue to explore the stuff that you do, that uncomfortable is okay, and being an example, particularly for my two daughters, about how to build the resilience to cope with the life that they're going to have to lead coming up. Mm. It's a it's a very cool strategy. Um, Greg, a couple more quick questions for you, but I just want to take a moment to say thank you very much for, again, taking some time to, to sit down and have a chat with me. It's always awesome to connect with you and, and have a, a very interesting, in-depth conversation around a whole range of topics. Um, well, I, Chris, you're in, the, you're in the tribe now, so yep. we have to do it. Yes. Um, I also want to say thank you as well for being the eternal student as well and being curious and kind of following along with with all of the new science and all of the new all the new stuff that is coming out and kind of keeping up with the cutting edge so you can disseminate that knowledge to to a whole lot of other people that for whatever reason um haven't been able to to keep up with it so thank you so much for that that's a nice thing to say thank you Greg, um, next question is quite easy, hopefully. Um, if people want to follow along with your stuff or, for, or if they want to learn more from you, where is the best place for them to go and do that? Well, I have my Instagram page, which is Dr. Greg Emerson, where I just usually put photos and video on of what I've been doing. Uh, there's my Dr. Greg Emerson Cedar Springs Farm, which I'm going to have to change the name of soon. Uh, because I don't have the farm anymore, on Facebook, where I write a lot of – I basically write about the new science, which is coming out, which is supporting this. And I also have a YouTube channel, uh, Dr. Greg Emerson, where I put on some videos I do about health and some of the cold water stuff I do. And then, of course, there's my uh, website, www.drgregemerson.com. 
Excellent. I'll pop some links for that in the notes for the show. Final question for you, Greg. Do you have a challenge to leave me and the listeners with this week? Um, a challenge. Okay, my challenge is going to be to uh, look at cold as being your friend. Uh, it's just such an exciting year of research. And everybody everybody likes the idea, but it's just too uncomfortable for them. And I think the easiest way to start doing it is with cold showers. And one of the things I've found that, it's, that makes that transition easier is I have, I have two cold showers a day. And I even have one in the evening before I go to bed. And you think, oh, well, that'll wake you up. But it doesn't actually science shows it makes you sleep better. So I have a nice hot shower. And then I slowly turn the water to cold. And I have at least a one-minute cold shower in the morning and the evening. And that's such a good way of getting into the cold area, which really does help your health. It builds resilience. And it's just something where you go, I have done something which I thought that was previously going to be too uncomfortable to me for me to do. What am I going to do next? Awesome. That is a great challenge for us to uh, to get into. Dr. Greg Emerson, thank you so much for getting uncomfortable with me today. Chris, it's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me back.